Welcome to Interviews for Resistance. Since election night 2016, the streets of the U.S. have rung with resistance. People all over the country have woken up with a conviction that they must do something to fight inequality in all its forms. But many are wondering what it is they can do. In this series, we'll be talking with experienced organizers, troublemakers, and thinkers who have been doing the hard work of fighting for a long time. They'll be sharing their insights on what works, what doesn't, what has changed, and what is still the same. I am Sarah Jaffe, your host. My name is Jesse Alexander Meyerson. I am uh, speaking in Bloomington, Indiana, where I'm an organizer with Hoosier Action and where I host a podcast called From the Heartland about other people who are also organizing in uh, the interior of the country and the places where leftists aren't normally thought of as being. So we're doing a sweet crossover episode. Um <laughs> I, yeah, so I wanted to talk to you for many reasons. Um, one of them is because we've known each other since the good old days of U.S. Uncut, um, the daily part of U.S. Uncut, <laughs> but also because Indiana has been um, kind of at the center of a lot of things in the last year. Um, you're in formerly Mike Pence country. You are in not that far from where the carrier plants and the Rexnard plant and all of the things that Trump sort of paid attention to for a minute were. Um, so, you know, you've got a lot of stuff going on in Indiana. So what um, – give people the lay of the land for what is going on in Indiana specifically, and then we'll get to national politics and healthcare care bills in, in a minute. Sure. Well, um, Indiana is uh, di- thought of differently from the other uh, states in this area, like Ohio and Michigan and Pennsylvania, um, because it's almost never included when people talk about swing states on the list of swing states. Um, mm-hmm. It's often thought that it's just too far gone and too reactionary here. But it wasn't very long ago. It was in 2008. Barack Obama won the state. And of the um, nine people that we sent to the U.S. House, five of them were Democrats, and we had one Democratic senator and one Democrat and one Republican senator, uh, and uh, one of the state legislatures was Democrat and the other Republican. Um, so it was very much a swing state at that point. And then in the interim, because of the um, sort of Tea Party uh, insurgency in 2010 and the um, super ruthless gerrymandering that that subjected the state to, uh, things have changed really dramatically in the last 10 years, uh, largely because of Governor Pence and also his predecessor, Governor Daniels. Um, like, for instance, right to work has come into the state. And uh, as I said, the gerrymandering is really terrible. And the um, the uh, voter ID law, which I think was actually 2006, um, just a whole series of things that have really – and, of course, yeah. this is a state that's still super reeling from NAFTA 20 years ago. A lot of right. terrible poverty that uh, began then that hasn't come back. I mean, or, you know, the, those those jobs are gone, and people who used to have good, say, union jobs working in manufacturing are, are greeting 30 hours a week in Walmart and other things like that. Um, and that's been so for 20 years. So – the state of um, democratic people's power in uh, Indiana is really, really weakened uh, by all of these reforms. And so you have electoral maps that where places that in 2008 were blue are now uh, salmon and places that were salmon are now red and places that were red are like scarlet. So um, 
uh, Donald Trump won it now that, that both um, state legislature legislative houses are supermajority Republicans. The governor is a Republican. Uh, seven out of the nine members of the congressional delegation are Republicans. We still have a, a split between the senators, Democrat and Republican, but the Democrat Joe Donnelly is up for a very, very tough re-election next year. The Koch brothers are already running ads against him. Uh, he's definitely the most vulnerable Democrat coming up. So it's very and difficult. And he's not here. that great a Democrat. And, and he voted for Gorsuch and has not done very much to endear himself to the Democratic votership. And endorsed the anti-abortion bill when he was in the House. <laughs> yeah. I, I so, just have a bone to peck with Joe Donnelly. Uh, <laughs> you, you and many of us. Uh, I, if only yeah. there were some better person who would replace him. But as, as far as it, it looks, it, um, the person likely to replace him is a far right winger named Luke Messer, who will probably run against him uh, in 2018. So um, the, the state of politics here is very difficult, but um, I think that underneath a lot of these things, the state is still very much a swing state in the way that it was in 2008, and that with some diligent organizing of the working class along uh, working class interests, um, that that can be reflected much more in the coming two cycles of elections and perhaps pull out a supermajority in time to get a, a much more fair, at least bipartisan, agreement around redistricting next time and then open up possibilities for more dramatic uh, transformation in future years. Yeah. And so organizing that working class around working class interests was the reason that you moved to Indiana. Tell us about Hoosier Action. Sure. So Hoosier Action was founded by um, a remarkable woman named Kate Hess Pace, who is from uh, Bloomington, Indiana. Her family stretches back, I think, five generations in New Albany, Indiana, which is a, a small town just across the Ohio River from Louisville, also in the same congressional district, about two hours south. Um, mm-hmm. And she, for, for the last uh, seven or eight years, uh, has been up in Minneapolis-St. Paul doing faith-based organizing with a group called Isaiah, which is part of the, the PICO network, um, organizing congregations around economic justice issues and uh, was instrumental in some really big campaigns, including winning the, the toughest foreclosure protections uh, and many other issues, um, predatory lending issues and things like that. And after the cataclysm of the 2016 elections, um, she felt very strongly uh, the urge to come home and start something here because in southern Indiana, I mean, as I implied earlier, there, there's the um, state of organizing in, the state in, in Indiana has been greatly debased, but um, probably nowhere more than southern Indiana where there was never particularly high union density in the first place. It's a lot of uh-huh. small towns and rural communities and not a lot of kind of big manufacturing centers. Um, so she has... She is a visionary organizer and is um, excellent at uh, relating to people and, and moving them toward on a path toward uh, greater leadership for themselves. And she knew that there was a niche for that right in this area, and she decided to come back and start it. And I, I also moved by the um, cataclysmic uh, uh, election results. Um, felt very strongly that my uh, efforts would be better, more efficiently deployed in the middle of the country. Um, in places where there wasn't uh, as significant a kind of progressive infrastructure as there is in my hometown of New York City, um, and was connected with Kate uh, by a mutual friend, Jeff Ordauer, from, uh, who uh, was for a long time a community organizer in St. Louis, Missouri, with Moore. Um, yeah. And we hit it off. We're super aligned. We have um, very, very close uh, political analyses and um, analyses of what needs to happen to win power for working people in this area, 
and we also, it turns out, are quite good friends, which is lucky, because we might not have been. <laughs> um, but we've been building this thing now for three months, so it's, it's nascent. We've got a small but growing um, base of dues-paying members. Um, we have uh, teams stood up around uh, operations and administration and around fundraising and around politics. We've been running um, uh, a sort of test canvas program uh, to gear up for our first big canvas, which will start uh, on July 8th and go for three weeks. Um, and we have uh, we started a we, we did a, a day long boot camp training for organizers in Indiana. People from all over the southern half of the state came. Um, so we've got all these programs sort of uh, just started and just up and running. Um, and, you know, we did one action on Donnelly's office around Medicaid cuts and infrastructure. And uh, we've been collecting Medicaid stories uh, of people on the doors, getting videos up of them and um, taking uh, Medicaid stories, first person accounts that uh, people, mostly mothers in, in the region, have written and trying to get them placed in uh, uh, national press uh, mm. uh, outlets. And, uh, yeah, just trying to build power, bring, as, as Kate says, power is organized people plus organized money. So that's what we're trying to do, collect a lot of people and a lot of money. It's the only way we're going to uh, make an impact in, in Indiana or, or nationally. And you got one of those stories in the Washington Post, right? Yeah, sure did. A, a woman named Audie McCullough. I, I went to a, um, a die-in protest at Bloomington Town Hall that was sponsored by a bunch of groups, including um, the Monroe County chapter of the National Organization of Women, and uh, Audie is a, a member of that. It's a fledgling organization as well, also started after the election, actually after the Women's March. Um, and she, there were a couple of people spoke who kind of were doing, who were, were experts. You know, it's a college town, so there's a bunch of expertise here. Um, yeah. And their expertise, the way that they expressed it at this kind of press conference was in statistics and things. And I, I couldn't pay attention or remember any of them. But then Audie got up with her child, Caden, and told her story of his extremely complex medical needs and the health scares that they had both faced and uh, uh, the absolute necessity of Medicaid in their lives as a, a kind of basic pillar for either of them to be able to live free and dignified lives. Um, and she just completely won me over, and I was like, you're a natural leader. So <laughs> she she wrote up her story, and we got it placed in the, the Washington Post. Thanks, Liz Brunig. Yeah. It's very interesting because, you know, telling these stories is an important part of this kind of organizing, but it also, you know, you can just end up with people thinking that just telling a sad story is going to be enough to move their senator and then wondering why that doesn't work. So I'd love you to talk a little bit more about, like, the way that this storytelling does and doesn't fit into your organizing strategy. Sure. Um, Well, I I would say it fits in. uh, It's integral. It's definitely integral. It's, it's, as you imply, it's not, um, it's not sufficient unto itself. But um, we, basically, the, the essence of the organizing that we're doing is, uh, is relational. The, the, the idea is that um, uh, the, any organizing that takes place absent the, the building and deepening of relationships between people um, is going to be basically facile. And it's going to be very difficult to have people be accountable to the group and to really show up. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's one thing if you can get 12 people in a room to talk to a senatorial aide. It's another if you can get 400. Um, and right. that 400 really only comes when people have really deepened their relationships with one another. So a lot of this Organizing is based on having long one-on-one discussions about people, what their 
um, lives are like, what they're interested in, what they're concerned about, what they're afraid of, what they're angry about, what they're hopeful for, um, and just growing relationships that way. Um, that's both like on the doors and then ideally in follow-ups uh, after uh, people get knocked or called. Um, and so there's a dog barking in the background. I have to apologize to the listeners at home. Uh, Minnie, she's very sweet. Um, and... So the, those stories are um, important in uh, in the actual day-to-day organizing of talking to people and, and letting them know yeah. who you are and finding out who they are. Um, but as a as a kind of um, public uh, expression, they really what we hope to do is uh, to like mobilize people with that. But that ultimately mm-hmm. that mobilization should turn into becoming a dues-paying member, coming to monthly member meetings, joining a team, and taking on work. And that can be yeah. going out knocking on doors. It can be doing data entry. It can be um, you know, helping to promote issues or taking on a shift uh, at the farmer's market or at a county fair or something, flyering or taking petitions. Um, but ideally, it's not just a – it's not a kind of high-temperature uh, uh, um, sort of organizing like, like such as you and I saw at Occupy Wall Street where it's lots yeah. of marches, lots of heat, lots of intensity. But really, it's that, – that emotional heat is supposed to be channeled into, like, really well-functioning systems that people can take on discrete amounts of work that make sense with their working lives and with their family lives, uh, but that serve that, – that they can see serving to proliferate the organization. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And this is the thing that I think is, is um, you know, a lot of people will sort of say like, oh, is this movement dead or is this movement gone or is this thing uh, whatever. And actually, a lot of the important work is the work you can't see. Absolutely. Yeah. Building up uh, infrastructure, managing our database. I mean, the um, we sort of think of Hoosier Action as a as a vessel or as like maybe a basket that that um, we're all kind of collectively weaving so that it can be strong and hold all of the people and money that we're trying to bring together to create power. Um, yeah. And that vessel, built, weaving that basket or or you know air, making that vessel watertight, um, that requires like yeah all sorts of. Uh, maintaining spreadsheets and, uh, you know, sending follow-up emails and doing doing lots and lots of behind-the-scenes work that uh, doesn't um, seem glamorous and may not look like it's actually waging class struggle in the way that we sort of want to imagine it cinematically unfolding, but that's actually vital for building the kind of power that we need. If it were a, a weak basket or a, a, a vessel with some holes in it, um, the, the power that we would be able to accumulate in it would be uh, greatly diminished. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we've talked a little bit about Joe Donnelly. You talked a little bit about the Medicaid work. Um, tell us about your other senator and where the pressure points have been in Indiana around this national health care fight. So it's very difficult to figure out how we can affect Todd Young. For one thing, he was just elected last year. So he's got yeah. plenty of time before he's up for re-election. So he's not vulnerable in that way. Um, second of all, the um, the... Uh, if I were a senator looking for to um, figure out my reelection chances and I were looking at the uh, the electoral map of this state from 2016, um, I would definitely get the signal that the right wing political forces in this state were much stronger than the left wing ones. Um, and yeah. so I think Young feels quite buttressed at the moment. So it's. Though he hasn't been um, as vocal in support of the AHCA as other people, and perhaps that comes from the inordinate um, percentage of people uh, in the state who are on Medicaid, including 40% of the kids, um, but we, we don't think that he will 
stand with Hoosiers. We think that he will stand with insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies and billionaires. Um, yeah. Donnelly has um, all of those uh, incentives reversed, where he, he right. as I say, is facing a really tough re-election battle next year. He needs the support of people going out and knocking on doors and stuff because he's just not going to raise the same amount of money as his opponent will, but through yeah. the, you know, the Koch brothers and everything else. So he's got to rely on a strong ground game and, you know, lots of students knocking on doors and things like that. And he's, he's far from got that because, <laughs> as we talked about earlier, as we he mentioned. really endeared himself to uh, the sort of more progressive forces in the state. Um, he's up for re-election real quick. But so far, he seems to – and um, he is one of the senators along with Senator Manchin from – West Virginia and Senator Heitkamp from North Dakota that has consistently met with Republicans behind closed doors to, to try and hammer out bipartisan solutions, including uh, around this health care mm-hmm. reform bill, uh, before all of the sort of procedural chicanery, which I think kind of shook them off from that. And I think Democrats are holding a firmer line because these kind of um, procedural norms have been so wantonly discarded by the Republicans. Um, so I yeah. think that's actually played to our advantage in this case. Uh, we don't think he's going to vote for the thing, but he it, it's possible. And, and in any case, he needs to know that um, it is the stronger move for his reelection campaign that he not support the thing. Um, and so it's important to keep up uh, pressure on him, continue to do actions at him, uh, and, and continually push him to take more and more leadership opposing this bill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's it's an interesting set of questions there, um, certainly. So, Internally in, in Indiana, um, I want to talk about this because Mike Pence, um, there have been some very particular health, public health issues that are worth bringing up because they are issues that are prominent around the country and perhaps especially in places like Indiana that have been hit really hard by the decline of manufacturing. Um, I'm talking about, of course, the AIDS outbreak that Mike Pence is basically responsible for and um, the opioid crisis. Yeah, so um, the and these two are linked for him. And then there's actually a third, right. which I would cite, which is water contamination. Yeah. Um, all mm-hmm. three of those crises were really, really um, uh, deepened by the Pence approach to uh, public health, which is basically to decimate it. So in Scott County, which is uh, in this part of the state, um, where it's very there's a, a very high poverty rate and there's a lot of uh, opioid usage, um, he, uh, being the um, uh, radical uh, uh, right-wing, ultra-right-wing Christian fundamentalist theocrat that he is, uh, waged war on Planned Parenthood during his tenure as governor and uh, and shut down the, the Planned Parenthood in Scott County, which did not offer abortion services at that particular clinic, but it was the only facility in the county that delivered HIV testing. Uh, mm-hmm. And so with that gone, this um, HIV outbreak uh, occurred, which was the biggest in the state's history and the first in the United States uh, that we know to be associated with sharing needles from injecting prescription painkillers. Um, and he was extremely resistant to the idea of uh, allowing needle exchanges to come into effect. Eventually, he relented on that. He, he didn't make them legal statewide, but he did start a program whereby counties could um, appeal to him for a waiver on against the <laughs> prohibition. Um, so eventually that got a little better. And then the new governor, who's, uh, I think, less of an ideologue, uh, but still a, a Republican operative guy, Eric Holcomb, um, he, he's been more lenient on that still. Um, yeah. The other one being uh, being the, the um, 
water contamination crisis in East Chicago, where um, the Governor Pence wouldn't allow, wouldn't uh, call a state of, it was a terrible water contamination crisis uh, due to, as always, industrial byproduct. Um, and he wouldn't allow uh, a state of, emer- he wouldn't call a state of emergency, which would sort of free up some funds to help uh, relocate people who, you know, could, couldn't live there without getting poisoned. Um, right. And the new governor has has uh, relented on that and called the state of emergency. Um, so, yeah, a bunch of, like, really, really terrible public health crises that broke out from there. But I should note, lest anyone get too rosy a picture of the new governor, that he has proposed <laughs> a new uh, modification to the Medicaid program here. It's called HIP 2.0, the Healthy Indiana Plan 2.0, uh, which uh, Mike Pence reluctantly expanded under the ACA. Um, uh-huh. He's added, he's added, he's hoping to add a new provision that um, makes work, that adds a work requirement so that either you're, you have to be working or you have to be actively searching for work uh, if you're able-bodied uh, under the, this new plan. And then, of course, that means the it necessitates a big bureaucracy to determine who's able-bodied and who isn't, whether they're sufficiently looking for work, and all these sorts of things that wind up meaning that the program will cost more and cover fewer people. Um, yeah. So it's not as though his public health record is shaping up to be any better than his predecessors. And that is if Medicaid doesn't get decimated by the federal government. Yeah, that's right. They're talking about cutting the thing in half in a decade. And like I said, 40% of kids here, not to mention like disabled people and older people who uh, are on both Medicare and Medicaid. I mean, it's, it's, there's significant poverty in this region and, and people really rely on it. Um, like I said, as a, a basic pillar of their lives, it's the only way to, to reach a break even point. If they cut it and people get kicked off of it, uh, they're just going to be underwater, and it, it's there, there are a lot of people who just cannot work. They 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 are, they are yeah. not able to do it, and if they cut Medicaid, uh, and these people get kicked off, then they're they're going to die. It's just going to be death and bankruptcy all across the state. Yeah, and uh, well, if we see anything from Mike Pence's example, it's that they'll regret it when it's too late. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. You know the the carrier plant stunt that Trump pulled very much is sort of taken as his concern with the quote-unquote white working class. You and I know what the reality of the workers of the carrier plant looks like, which is that it's not (laughs) all white and not all male, and that now, indeed, the uh, incoming president of that union is a person of color. Um, But so when you thought about moving someplace to do organizing work and this sort of obsession with the white working class was in the air – um, what was it that you thought about in terms of doing this work, fighting, um, organizing against white supremacy? What were you thinking in terms of who and where and why and how you wanted to be organizing? Uh huh. Well, um, basically, I think that what's necessary is an interracial working class um, movement that uh, links up the um, urban working class and poor who tend to be black and Latin and the rural small small town working class and poor who tend to be white, but also increasingly are Latin and black, frankly, and um, many other immigrant groups besides. But just for as far as like predominance goes, like the district I'm in is is over 95% white. Um, Yeah. And I see and have been a part of as a, as a, a, uh, an employee of various labor unions in New York, um, really diligent, uh, 
organization of um, working class people in New York City, uh, mainly people right. of color. And uh, so there is infrastructure around that. What what is not um, what I, I didn't see very much of, uh, and which I think is increasing now, and and um, which I'm trying to uh, emphasize by connecting these various projects through the podcast that I host, um, is more attention being paid to the kind of small town and rural. Uh, areas of the country, which is, mm-hmm. um, you know, J- Jesse Jackson's campaigns in 84 and 88 and Bernie Sanders' campaign to an extent was sort of predicated on this, this urban rural linkage of, of people who have really similar concerns, Medicaid and food stamps and housing affordability and, uh, you know, water and water contamination and, or as in New York, air pollution. Um, and so who, who sort of should make natural allies, but who, because basically the Democratic Party has spent the last 40 years becoming a party of, um, bourgeois suburbanites, um, ha- is sort of not, um, hasn't shown any interest in fostering, um, uh, through its official channels. And so, uh, that was what, what I was thinking. Basically, I wanted to go to a place where, um, the, uh, a place that had, um, voted for Obama and then voted for Sanders in the primary and then went to Trump in the general. I felt like that was the kind of, and there were <laughs> plenty of places like that. Um, yeah, that was the sort of, cross-section of people who, um, in having voted for Obama, showed that it's not that the the sort of vitriolic, racist, organized white supremacist faction wasn't mm-hmm. so powerful there that it was di- dictating the course of the state, um, but that had this sort of um, anti-establishment bent that um, that led the Democrats of the state to prefer Senator Sanders uh, and the um, and then ultimately uh, uh, the state going to Trump and and thus needing uh, considerable organizing out of that situation. Um, right. And Indiana is definitely one of those places. Um, and we're organizing uh, working class people across race together in the state. And I, I think that that's the best hope we have at a, a realignment of the political forces in this state. And I think uh, partly for the reasons I identified earlier about why the state is a little different from the rest of the Midwest, um, I think providing a – if we can unlock that here, then, then we've unlocked the rest of the Midwest as well. Yeah. Um, I said that was going to be the last question, but I lied because I did want to ask you about your po- your podcast. Um, and why and um, what have you learned through doing that so far? Oh, well, I uh, – so part part of the impetus for the podcast was that I didn't want to burden Hoosier Action with its um, uh, nascent budget uh, fiscally, so I wanted to be able to be a full-time volunteer, and so I'm financing my life through uh, this podcast and putting it on Patreon. Um and so that was one motivation. The other motivation, another motivation was to, as I say, sort of link up these various projects that are going on in, uh, what I'm calling the heartland, but which is actually a massive swath of the United States. I'm talking about yeah. the South, Appalachia, the Rust Belt, the Midwest, and the Plains states. Um, so I've had people as far apart from one another as, um, uh, a teamster in Georgia and the chair of the Democratic Party in Nebraska. <laughs> so it's like thousands of miles apart. Um, calling it the heartland, whatever. But basically to <laughs> let, let coastal listeners and listeners in big metropolises know what sorts of things are going on in the interior of the country, um, what sorts of projects that they should be supporting from their remote locations, um, and hopefully to sort of, uh, cobble together a, 
um, some kind of shared uh, vision and shared understanding of what sort of organizing looks like in these places, uh, the better to sort of help one another strategize about how we're building power in our own specific uh, locations and circumstances. So how can people how can people subscribe to your podcast, um, support your work, and support and if they're in Indiana, join Hoosier Action. Yeah, well, uh, HoosierAction.org is the website. You can follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Hoosier Action, both cases. Um, if you you can you can become a dues-paying member from abroad. <laughs> it doesn't mean you have to come to uh, meetings. If you are in Indiana, we will be trying to schedule meetings with you. But if you're not, you can still give us money every month. It's, it's just as good no matter where it originated. <laughs> um, and uh, that, that can happen at the website. Uh, as far as the podcast goes, it's at patreon.com slash from the heartland. Uh, you should become a, you can listen to it there for free, or if you become a patron even at a dollar a month, you can get on the super swanky newsletter. Um, and yeah, follow along. And, and uh, I'm, I'm taking a Twitter hiatus right now, but normally I'm J.A. Meyerson on Twitter, and you can follow me there. And uh, DMs are always open, so you can harass me for being a commie. Interviews for Resistance is a project of Sarah Jaffe with assistance from Laura Fayebois and support from the Nation Institute. You can find more information at necessarytrouble.org. Thanks for listening.